0: Good afternoon. This is Bitcoin and today it's going to be permaculture. Specifically, we're going to talk about um, well, we're going to talk about mushrooms, but it's going to be like uh, mycorrhizae, which is in the uh, fungal it's it's a uh, part of the fungal family. So you can think of it as a mushroom, it's just it's uh, it just doesn't give you any, you know, it doesn't give anybody any fruiting bodies, but what it does is critical for all life on this planet. So it's not like it's not important. It is, it's crucial. So we're gonna be talking about that. It's a gorgeous West Texas day, it's 85 degrees, it's 3.20 in the afternoon, driving back up to the Panhandle, and we are not being beaten down by the sun and the microwave machine ray gun that it's been all summer long. So this, uh, this afternoon, I, you know, got out of work, got off work early, went to the house in Lubbock and dug up about seven or eight hyssop plants. Hyssop. I think it's H Y S O P. Yeah, I think that's how I think that's how it's spelled. Uh, it's an interesting plant. You should look it up. I'm not going to talk about it here. But first. Since this is Bitcoin and we're going to do a little bit of Bitcoin stuff. The price is, or was, when I did the show notes for the or show outline for this, $6,494. Be aware, people, there is a shitcoin recovery going on. It's not, you know, Bitcoin's coming up and the shitcoins are like, you know, Bitcoin was up like, I don't know, 3.5%. And Shitcoin Central is anywhere between like 5 and 24% gains. It's just, you know, it's just, people are just not going to learn their lessons. You know, I mean, so many people are going to lose so much money, and I guess it's just going to take a, I guess it's just going to go on forever. I was about to say, it's just going to take a long time for people to figure out that 99.9% of this crap is exactly that. It's just crap it is it is some other person's way of fleecing you out of your money so that they can end up buying more bitcoin because i'll tell you what they're not doing the smart ones are not sitting on bags of shit they're just not they're fleecing you out of your money because you don't know any better and then they wait and they're going to figure out through I don't know, technical analysis, feel of Twitter, crypto Twitter, feel of their, you know, telegram groups, you know, some people are just real good at putting a whole bunch of disparate, you know, disparate information together in a package and say, you better sell it. So after they fleece you out of your cash, they're going to sell their bags back to some other idiot. They're going to take that money. Actually, they're just going to trade it straight up for Bitcoin because so, they can, there's always going to be somebody who's going to sell it. I don't know. Makes no sense to me. Seems like a big pain in the rear. Just buy Bitcoin. This is not investment advice. Um, <clears throat> okay, shitcoin recovery aside, an interesting thing came over my, twi- my crypto Twitter feed that was talking about, and God, I should have wrote down the user's name. That is just not fair. It is not me that found this. It was somebody else that's doing it. I'm remiss in the fact that I did not write their name down. I got to get better at doing that. But what's going on is that there was a, a tweet that, that that hit my feed today that was talking about um, having a having a uh, there was a somebody has designed a bit of code that, when run, you can give it your uh, feed it your signed transaction. And it will, con- now this signed transaction doesn't mean transmitted transaction, okay? There, there's a way to build a transaction without actually having to transmit it, right? But for that transaction to be transmitted to be considered valid by the Bitcoin network, it has to be signed by your private keys. Okay, so a signed transaction does not necessarily mean that it's been transmitted to the Bitcoin network, right? So, until that signed transaction hits the network, that transaction is just kind of sitting there in limbo, right? It's, it's got the ability to transfer Bitcoin to somebody else as a signed transaction, but it hasn't done so yet because it's not quote-unquote live on the network. But that doesn't mean that you can't transmit it. In another, in another way, or through another channel first before it hits the Bitcoin network. And in this particular tweet, what it was, was a bit of code was written that would tra- um, translate your signed transaction to Morse code. Which I thought was really, really interesting for a number of reasons that I've been thinking about for, I don't know, at least a year and a half or a couple of, you know a couple of years year and a half and the fact that you can get a you can construct your signed transaction and transmit it over like have it uh, have it uh, translated into morse code that morse code can then be translate or uh, transmitted over fm or shortwave or am or i mean any any manner of analog transmission hell you can even tra- you can transmit that thing over uh, over the internet wire, you know, for all you know for all the for all the good that you know that that would do. And in, in either event, you can transmit this thing via radio, which means that I, I could I could be sitting on top of a mountain with a like a I don't know a five watt amplifier and like some kind of shortwave transceiver and transmit my signed transaction to a receiver station. Somewhere else, and then that transceiver station can re- basically unencode the or, or you know transcribe the Morse code into the valid signed transaction, and then have that thing be fed into the Bitcoin network. So I can literally buy something from somebody on a mountain with Bitcoin not using an Open Dime or, a, or or something like that. Open Dimes are cool. If you haven't checked it out, uh, you got to hit up at NVK Nancy Victor Kappa. Uh, that's Rodolfo's, Rodolfo Novak's Twitter account and he's the guy behind Open Dime, Cold Card Wallet, and, and that kind of stuff. And if you haven't checked out Cold Card, you, I'll, I'll, I'll do a show about, I'll do a Bitcoin show just about Cold Card at one point or another because if you haven't seen it, it's just it's too cool. Anyway, th- but this this whole thing about translating a signed transaction into morse code and then having that be able to transmit it to some other other place before it hits the bitcoin network. Uh, yeah, I mean yeah, you could use it for like a little bit of private, you know, you know obf- obfuscation of where it is, that you are because they don't have you know, your uh, IP address, all they have is the IP address of whoever, whoever it was that fed it into the Bitcoin network and transmitted it live on the Bitcoin network as a signed transaction for you. Um, you basically, you've, you've basically done a, you know, a, a transaction, you know, fed a transaction into the uh, Bitcoin network by proxy. So you know, it's lot like they, you know, and you don't really, I don't think a lot of people really worry about this and certainly probably should, but right now, it's probably not going to be the minute you make a transaction on the Bitcoin network that somebody's going to grab your IP address, figure out where you are geographically, and kick in your door. Um, I've done several transactions. No one's kicking in my door. But that doesn't mean that at one point or another, somebody, some kind of weird regulation comes down down the pipe, and then all of a sudden, transactions that I've made in the past are now a no-no, and somebody can come get me well, I've made trans- signed transactions from a computer that has a known IP address that's related to, you know, like the uh, account number of the company that I have my Internet through, All right? So it's, it's not it's not that far of a stretch. But so there's that point. But the, the other point that I think is like a much, much larger point is that it's like Bitcoin is reaching into past technologies to ensure its future, because one of the you know, especially like a complete noob that doesn't like Bitcoin and thinks the government's going to shut it down, you know that kind of thing gives them an argument, you know, to make. It's like well, you know, the, and it's like you know, BS arguments. Like well, the government will just shut down the internet. Yeah, <laughs> good, good luck. Any country that shuts off the internet to their uh, to their people, I mean, I'll bet you that. Like a neighboring co- country of Venezuela that is not having their, you know, that is not in a uh, uh, currency crisis like Venezuela is, and is just fine with their currency, if their government shut off their Internet for, you know, for like a, whole, like a year or just said, you know, you're just never going to have Internet again, buildings will burn in the street. I'm sorry. It, it'll, just be, it'll just be chaos. Because people are so dependent upon the Internet right now. So you can destroy somebody's currency over the course of a couple of years and make it to where nobody knows what the hell's going on for so long, and and they're just fine. They don't riot. You know, they're just fine, but I guarantee you, you kill a country's Internet, yeah. You don't know what kind of, you know, ugly animal you just unleashed on that. So these... Other analog technologies, this is one of the things that has been just really fascinating for me is understanding that you can transmit transactions, uh, not on the Bitcoin network. Remember, we're not on the Bitcoin network, but I can construct transactions to give you Bitcoin and you give me your wallet address. I can sign a transaction with my private keys and then have that radioed around. And it gives us the ability to have a peripheral, peripheral uh, Bitcoin network, so that we can bounce these transactions around until we find a node that has an active internet connection, right? So even if a country were to shut down their internet, but I got a shortwave radio to my na- somebody like a, a, a somebody I know in a neighboring country, and I can transmit them via Morse code, a signed transaction so that somebody will give me food, um, and then have that person plug that transaction in because they've got a short wave you know, transceiver as well. Well, you know, I mean, th- this is one of those things where we keep finding ways that Bitcoin routes around government and borders and like, you know, sensor, uh, censorable technologies. You know, hell, we'll just dig a a 20, you know, a a 35-year-old ham radio out and use one watt and bounce signal, you know, sign transactions off the frickin' atmosphere from Texas and then find somebody in Florida who will decode that thing and then load it into the Bitcoin network and my transaction is now live on the Bitcoin network. And if that other person I'm doing business with has some kind of peripheral access to be able to verify that that transaction is is actually live on the network, well, hell, we just traded without the internet. Well, I mean, you still gonna need the internet at one point or another, but if you're like trying to do business, I mean, it, I know it gets really, really sticky and really, really hard, but you, we should really be looking at these things. You know, ham radio, shortwave radio, shortwave FM, AM, like ancient technologies, and refit them for the Bitcoin network is is insofar as a periphery, like your uh, circulation system. Most people go, well, your circulation system is your blood system. No, there's two circulation systems. There's your blood circulation system and your lymph system. Your lymph node system is a peripheral system that also squeezes liquid around your body. Now, it's part of your, your immune system and not part of the blood system. But, there, I mean, it just goes to show that there are per, there are peripheral networks that, that we can use in, in, in dire times. And it doesn't have to be the government kicking down your door or, or shutting down the Internet. Hell, it could just be like a, a huge natural disaster. And all of a sudden, if, you know, some pretty bright people get on, you know, have a system, they can just unfurl a peripheral system that will bounce transactions around and then be able to receive what's going on on the bitcoin blockchain to verify what the hell's going on back from, you know, some other country that, that has radio that's transmitting the bitcoin, you know, every block that comes up is going to have all this information embedded in it. If you just treat like get the the new block and then automatically transmit that via radio and I can receive it, well I know what the contents of the, of the last block was. Well, hell, people, that's a periphery, so good luck for all those people making the argument that the government will just shut it down because they're not going to, they can't. You know, any government, any natural disaster that occurs, I mean, even if a solar flare wiped out all, you know, like like an electromagnetic pulse slammed into one side of the earth, guess what is not going to be EMP'd? The other side of the earth, which has a copy of the damn blockchain. All right. So, for all those people that keep thinking that there's going to be a way to shut this down, please just stop. Just stop it. It can't be shut down. It's too late. The game is over. So I'm sorry. Let's move on to one of the, to to a, a way that this actually peripheral networks what we just talked about, actually connects up with a real-world analog in the plant space. Right. <clears throat> Mushrooms. I love them. But there's a misconception. There, there's sort of like some confusion as to what a mushroom actually is. So what a mushroom actually is is um, a mass a, a mass of... Well, they're not a plant, and they're not an animal, and they're not bacteria. It's it's a massive living tissue that lives in the soil, essentially. And there are a few different kinds. There are the kinds that we're used to, which pop up out of the ground sometimes after a rain, and you know, or, or you know, and they they have like a bulbous head. They got a stalk. Sometimes there are puffballs on the ground. You know, you see like a shell fungus that grows on the side of the tree is a kind of mushroom. But those are, those are the only the parts of the mushroom we actually see, which is about 1% of the mass of the mushroom that is physically present in your surroundings that made that fruit, it's a fruiting body. So when a lot of people say mushrooms, all the first picture that comes up in their head is not a mushroom it's the fruiting body of a mushroom. Most of the mushroom is in the soil, or in the dead log, or in the leaf litter on the ground, or, you know, whatever, okay? So, but there's another kind of of mushroom which doesn't have really a fruiting body, at least not that I'm aware of. And it's, it ends up being probably the majority of all fungal matter in the soil. All soil fungal matter is comprised of this living thing that doesn't really make fruiting bodies that we can see. And certainly none that we're going to throw into the store in piles so that we can, you know, make, you know, like a mushroom gravy or something like that. These two particular types, they're, they they come in, uh, They come in more than two flavors. I'm only going to talk about the two main flavors, but um, the first one is arbuscule or endomycorrhizal fungi. The other is ectomycorrhizal fungi. So what do these things do? These things create a network of fibers that connect plants to nutrients, connect plants to water, connect plants to each other. So let's let's dive into this. Especially I, I want and I really want you to hold the connecting plants to each other. That's a not only is it critical to the understanding of what's going on here, it's absolutely friggin' fascinating. Okay, and this is very, very, very much like what we were just—I ta- was talking about with the peripheral network for Bitcoin. Okay, so in arbuscule mycorrhizae, what characterizes arbuscule or endomycorrhizal fungi? is that it forms, and all of these, both of these things form relationship with plant roots, okay? But they do it in two very different ways. In endomycorrhizal, they form um, um, a relationship with plant roots by not only penetrating the plant root, but actually penetrating several of the plant root cells, literally going into the cell wall of the plant root and kind of living at the very, at the very periphery of the living cell itself. It it is, from my reading, it doesn't actually puncture the cell membrane. Because remember, in a plant, there's two things that are, there's two barriers to entry into into the plant uh, cell. There is a Lipid bilayer, <clears throat> but outside of the lipid bilayer, there is a wall that's made out of like har- harder stuff than than you know, essentially vegetable oil, let's say, and it's made out of lignin and you know all kinds of hard- harder stuff, and that's what gives trees their strength and plants their strength. Um, that's why they're not f- you know fleshy like we you know like we are like mammals and stuff like that. <clears throat> But they, they come as close to penetrating the, like, so there's, there's okay, so there's the, the inside of the cell, then there's the lipid bilayer, and then there's the cell wall outside. This thing goes into the cell wall, penetrates it, and then kind of lays around the, the lipid bilayer. So in a way, it's penetrated the cell, but it's not like it penetrates the lipid bilayer and goes and hangs out by the nucleus, right? It kind of is the, this interstitial space. and. While it's there, what it does is it sets up a farmer's market, for lack of a better term, with that cell. That, partic- that particular cell, it kind of sets up shop, and it says, and it basically it starts pe- it starts peddling its, its wares in a way. But there's there's a chicken and egg thing that I'll, I'll get to in a second the the vendor will we'll say the endomycorrhizae is like a vendor that's been invited sorry I'm, I'm at that point where there's uh, road construction um, it's the the vendor in this case the uh, the endomycorrhizae fungi has been invited to the party once it's inside the door ie the cell wall it sets up its shop and starts saying here's here's what I got to sell you pal and the, the, the thing with mycorrhizal fungi, all of it, is its extraordinary ability to mine for micronutrients, macronutrients, water, this type of thing, and be able to transport it long distances along its network of fibers. Again, this is, this is one of the best link-ups to Bitcoin that I've found yet. Okay? So, you can think of it as a network because that is exactly what it is. And if you want to think about micronutrients, macronutrients, and water as messaging packets, be my guest because that's exactly the way that I think of it. Therefore, this network is transmitting information, it's transmitting information directly to the plant cell in the case of arbuscule or endomycorrhizae fungus. So it's sitting there next to the cell wall. It's been invited to the party by the cell, by the plant, which we'll get to later, if I don't forget. Um, You know, doing this on the road, is hard, people. Anyway, so uh, it's sitting there by the, the lipid membrane, and this is where stuff can get from inside the cell to outside the cell, and from outside the cell to inside the cell. The lipid membrane is what's called semi-permeable. And not only is it semi-permeable, there are gates that specifically say, I want this phosphorus, but I, or in other gates that say, I want this phosphorus, but only if it's connected with this other molecule. It's sort of like a whole set of keys to the kingdom. And if, if that key, like a, a particular molecule, doesn't fit the lock, it doesn't get through. The door doesn't open into the, the cell membrane. All right, so here's where the endomycorrhizal stuff comes in. It's sitting there right by the, the, the membrane. So there's all manner of, of doors that, that can be opened. So what the plant does is say, I want selenium. Let's say that that's what what it's wanting. The endomycorrhizal fungi has selenium that it's been able to mine, and it can transport it to exactly that place. We're talking cellular level stuff here, people. And it can transport it exactly to that place, release it in the interstitial space between the cell membrane and the membrane of the fungi that's giving it, but it will only give it if it gets something back in return. And in this case, it'll get a particular kind of sugar. The cell will, you know, this, the all your cells, all your cat cells, every tree you've ever seen, every plant you've ever seen, every cell in every living organism, the majority of what it does is to be able to make sugar and then break sugar down right now, you know, like in the case of mammals, not, not so much as making sugar as as breaking sugar down, but still there is a huge amount of, there's a, a massive amount of mechanics that are involved in the cell in being able to handle sugar and different kinds of sugar, and what, how they get broken down, and where they go, or in plant vegetative cases, how they're built from photosynthesis, and what's built. Because there's more than one sugar, we've discussed this, you know, I've discussed this before. There's all kinds of sugars, and each one of them is like its own little key, all right? So this particular fungus say says, well, I'm only going to give it to you if, if you give me and I, I don't know, like the, the name of the particular sugar for the exchange because it's not important. If you want to drill down in the details, go hit the literature, man. Go go type in how many different types of sugars um, are involved in biology, and prepare to be whacked in the brain because it'll it. There's a lot more than sucrose, dextrose, and maltose. Okay, so in this like let's say in this case it's manose. Well, unless the, unless the plant's given up mannose, the fungi is not gonna be given up selenium. You want mannose or you want selenium? Well, you gotta start like porting sh- uh, mannose sugars over your cell membrane and I will collect them and then that will cause me to release selenium. And then at that point, there's sol- free sol- available selenium. It fits into a key and lock in the cell cell membrane of the plant. It goes through, and it does in the cell whatever selenium does in a plant cell. I'm not a I'm not a botanist or a or a you know PhD level nutrition you know nutritional botanist. I I I don't know what that particular sugar does. I know what the basic sugars do, but uh you know mannose can be used for all manner of stuff. So it's a it's a trading relationship. It's like barter, right? It's like you got you got manos. I got selenium. Let's trade. And, but the, what's neat about it is that the trade the vendor is right there. And if the vendor doesn't have what the plant wants, because that vendor is connected to a massive distribution network, it can get it. It can trans, it, It'll eventually the selenium will will be there. And we're not, you know, not exactly sure how all this works from a, from a mechanical level, but we know enough to know that there is signaling that's going through this mycelial network, or our ectomycorrhizae. We can also use mycelial network at this point because that's also a name for the, the network. You know, the, the mycelium is the little fibers that, that come out of all this stuff. Um, and it will eventually get its selenium and the, the organism, the endomycorrhizal fungi will get its mannose. And it's not just that copper, I don't know, maybe various salts, certainly water. Um, you know, and, and the reason this, this, this relationship occurs with, with plants is that if you look at a plant root, and see, you know, just how many, like, little plant rootlets, you know, you got a root, and then things branch off to that, and then, like, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, like, you know, veins or arteries in your body. Same deal, for the same purpose. Increase surface area. But if you look at the surface area of like a gram of soil, like, a, like let's say a cubic, uh, cubic centimeter of soil that just has nothing but plant roots in it and you take all the plant roots out of it and you calculate the surface area of those plant roots, it's going to be a thousand to ten thousand times less surface area in the same volume that mycelia or mycelium will be able to hit. And since that mycelium can hit so much more surface area, it has so much more opportunity to be able to emit digestive enzymes into the soil and break down soil into situations where it can pick up free available selenium, free available copper, whatever, and take it into the network and then be able to shunt that to all the plants that are willing to give that organism sugar So that it has, you know, um, so that it has energy or however it's using these particular sugars of which there are thousands of different sugars, so that it can live because by itself the mycelium cannot produce its own sugar. It is absolutely obligate, um, it's not parasitic, it's an obligate, oh good God almighty, what's the name of that thing? It's, we said it's a, it's an obligate symbiote. It, it like I, and I'm sure there are versions of it that parasitize. You know, and maybe all of it will parasitize if it really gets you know, shit gets dire out there. But for the most part, what we what we know is that it's a what's called an obligate symbiotic relationship. It's obligated to form a symbiotic relationship where it receives sugars from something that it gives something to so that both organisms benefit and the plants are getting a really good deal. It will, and so, and I don't know if it can be argued that any either party is getting a better deal. In either event, that's endomycorrhizal. Ectomycorrhizal does the exact same thing, except it does not form one-on-one relationships with with individual cells. What it does is it forms like more of a whole community, it, it, it makes like a sheath around the physical root. And so now the, the trading partnership is much more spread out. It's not on a sell-by-sell basis, it's on a, this, you know, maybe this, you know, millimeter of root has a sheath around it formed by the mycelium of the ectomycorrhizal fungi, and in mass, it's sort. Of, I guess that would be more of the farmer's market. Instead of having the guy come deliver the pizza to your door, this is more of a situation where you go and go to a market, and there's pizza, and there's this, and there's that, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But essentially, the same things being done. Sugar, different kinds of sugar are being traded for different kinds of uh, uh, micronutrients, macronutrients, maybe water. That the, these types of things. So it does the exact same thing. It just, it's, it's just the way the vendor relationship is set up is completely different. But it's still a network. And it's still, you know, doing these things, like being able to go into the soil, mine stuff out, be able to get in the network, go talk to the plant, say, hey man, you got some manos, because I got some copper. You know, and it's like, yeah, shoot, yeah, we'll trade. And then everybody, you know, everybody's everybody's happy. All right, so moving on. What we need to understand is that the arbuscule or the endomycorrhizal fungi is essentially in annual plants. Uh, these are the ones that form one-on-one relationships with with cells, uh, indiv- you know, sort of individual cells, and a whole bunch of them, at, you know, at one time. Grasses, you know, vegetables, you know, mostly like a- you know annuals, stuff that are like basically non-woody plants. Now the ectomycorrhizal fungi is mostly in trees and woody plants, shrubs, you know, like uh, maybe like blackberry bushes, you know, stuff like that. In the arbuscule case, about 85% of the plants on the face of the planet have a relationship and is absolutely critical for that relationship to form for those plants to survive. Think about it, people. Eighty-five percent of all the growing stuff you see, all the veg- veg- vegetative matter on this planet, can only come about by this symbiotic relationship with endomycorrhizal fungi. Another ten percent comes from ectomycorrhizal fungi, and that's basically forests. You know, like like I said, trees of all manner. You know, shrubs, bushes, woody dicots. You know, like woody, woody, you know, species that are perennial, that are long-lived. You know, that type of thing. That's the ectomycorrhizal fungi. So there's that leaves about like what five percent, ninety-five percent of all the vegetative matter on the planet depends on a relationship with shit you can't see. And how big do these organ? How big do, do these networks get? There's one in, oh, there's a honey mushroom in, um, it's either Washington State or Oregon. I'm pretty sure it's Oregon. It's the largest, it's the largest organism on the face of the planet. Large, it's several times larger than a blue whale. And we're talking, not in volume, I'm talking sheer mass, kilograms. Kilograms of sheer mass. This thing blows a blue whale, blue whale, you know, out of the out of the water, right? This thing covers, a, like, I don't know, a couple of hundred acres, you know, maybe like a quarter of a section, and it may it may cover more than that. It may cover like a full square mile or 640 40 acres. And in its now, this one is just it's not a endo or ectomycorrhizal fungi. This one is a fruiting body fungi, but it's also a parasite, and it's a forest destroyer. It will kill every tree that it sees. It'll it'll it, and that's what it does. This patch, that's how that that's how it was found. Is that overhead flights? People kept noticing in the middle of this for heavily forested old growth, you know, forest in a. Um, in uh, uh, Oregon, that there was just this huge prairie. And when they finally went down there, they found out the edges, that it was like this, it was just nothing but honey mushrooms fruiting off of these dead trees, and then live trees behind it. And it was just, slow, it's just slowly marching through the forest, killing the forest. Which is the way things are supposed to work. Don't get scared, people. This, this has to happen so that it's sort of like recycling the land. Eventually trees will pop back up after the honey mushroom is out of that area, trees will pop back up, it'll reforest. The fact that you're not going to be alive, don't make that a bad, don't make, just because you're not going to be alive doesn't mean that the honey mushroom is the enemy of the earth, okay? That's, that's That's human hubris that has got to end. Just because something happens and you're not going to be alive to see it repaired doesn't mean that it's not supposed to happen. So guys, get, you know, take a chill pill. So anyway, um, so what is, it, what is it, like, so we, so we got some takeaways here. So, so I got two major takeaways and this is, you know, the fact that they form trading partnerships, that plants form trading partnerships with this organism. And it's been going on for a lot longer than human commerce. So for me, it begs the question, did humans invent commerce? Or somehow or another, is it embedded in our DNA from ancient times? Because fungus and trees have been around a lot longer than mammals. These relationships were formed a long time ago. In fact, it's theorized that without fungus already being present on open land that was not that is not submerged by water, was the only way that the first plants could start making its way from algal single-cell colonies onto the shore and turn themselves through evolution over, you know, however many millions of years into the plants that we see today. So fungus has been around here a lot longer than most of the stuff that we see, including us, including our trading partnerships, and what we think we know about economics. Probably take a lot, we could probably take a lot home from the economics of plants before we start saying how we invented free market activity. The other thing that I wanna take away is that it forms long distance commerce relationships with other plants. This is the most amazing thing. This is the one that is the most amazing to me when I think about it. And So let me take you through a couple couple of things of of what we're talking about. One end of of the same organism is connected to plants via their roots, either uh, ectomycorrhizal or endomycorrhizal, doesn't matter, pick your flavor, because it's the same. So one of these mycorrhizal organisms is connected to like a, I don't know, like a, like a, 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 a bunch of Douglas fir tree roots, right? And, then it, and what we had said is that, you know, what I had said was that the mycorrhizal has this ability to digest, you know, minerals in the soil and be able to release things that plant roots wouldn't be able to otherwise either release by themselves or even if they could, weren't, didn't have enough surface area to find it. Okay, but that's just one side of the story. One, like, so this one organism is connected to a tree. That's not the only tree it's connected to. It's connected to however many trees that organism's volume encompasses. So let's say that there's a, I don't know, let's say dug fir, and there's a stand of it in an old, you know, in a, we won't even say, just a forest. Just a couple, just think of a clump of pine trees. And it's like, let's say there's 40 trees and there's one mycelial network or a mycorrhizal network that that encompasses that same volume. That means every single tree is connected to every other single tree through a network by their roots. So not the, so now, the organism itself is not just saying, "Out, eh, I'm di- you know I'm sp- I'm spilling out my guts into the soil, and it's digesting. You know, I got some some hardcore acids here that's breaking up. I don't know some kind of cupric compound and, and copper. You know, copper ion. You know, atoms or ions pop out of it, and then it gets. You know, the the uh, uh, fungus picks it up, throws it inside its, its network, and threw it literally a series of tubes. It's like the, the way some idiot government heads thought the, net, the internet worked. But in this case, it's literally a series of tubes, is able to transport those molecules to where they're needed most. Where are they needed most? I don't know. Probably the trees that are giving it the most mannose because it's like, I need the most copper or selenium, or whatever whatever that trade relationship is. Whatever the key that unlocks whatever nutrient that the organism has to trade to the tree is probably where that nutrient is gonna go. I don't know, and I'm not sure we actually do yet because we haven't really studied this stuff, it's, which is a damn shame. Um, but, so think about it. Now, okay, now we take those 40 trees, and like uh, and it's like forty let's say it's forty trees inside of a larger forest. And those 40 trees are happen to be connected by this one mycelial network. I guarantee you there's more than one mycelial network connected to all these trees that are connecting it to other lumps of trees. Think the lightning network in Bitcoin. And if you don't know what lightning network is, Google the Lightning Network, Bitcoin. And you'll start seeing what I'm talking about. In either event, let's just stay here. Let's say a bolt of lightning hits the tree, like hits one of the trees in the middle, and just it's post toasted. Hits it so hard that it splits it, and then it, it does so much damage to it that it just breaks off at the stump. And there's just this this jagged, cracked, messed up stump just chilling out there in the middle of all these other trees. It has been found that years after some kind of traumatic event like this happens to a tree in a forest, without any way for it to make sugar, because it's, it has no canopy, it's not getting any sunlight whatsoever. Okay, assume thick canopy, assume zero light penetration to the forest floor, which means nothing out there is growing. This thing is still alive and viable and growing things and and shoots are coming out of it. Years after the fact, and it's not just stored energy in the root mass that is underneath it because these things should have depleted those reserves years ago and yet they're still alive well <clears throat> we come to find out that that tree being connected to its mycelial net to the mycelial network that lets it communicate via water micro and macronutrients to its brothers and sisters guess what's going on those trees are pumping carbon to that tree they're pumping sure that there's, a, there's a, that relationship somehow or another is still beneficial to the mycelial network involved that says, okay, instead of me just taking all this sugar for myself, this tree over here needs it. Maybe it's just simply because the thing can still harvest, is still alive enough to make, to have that trading relationship. I don't know. But what we do know is that it happens. Carbon is traded not you know from one like Douglas fir to another Douglas fir. What's even more fascinating is that this one organism can attach itself to different kinds of trees. And now different interspecies communication lines are now open as far as micro and macronutrients and water are concerned. Because water is also transported to these things. It's one of the reasons why when you chop down and clear cut a forest, the fir- first thing that happened is the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil die. And without that sponge there, the water doesn't hold in the soil and just drains right away. So you get two things, dried up streams and erosion events in rainstorms. And almost no penetration into the ground of that water when it does rain. It's too busy washing away the topsoil. That happens. That, that, that's on record. A a guy that was a forester said one of the first things he noticed when he clear-cut a forest for the first time, first thing that happened, the little streams dried up. They just dried up. So think about that. Now, there's another more, um, more concrete example of communication between plants via the mycelial network that connects the two of them. And this was done in a lab, okay? So this isn't like, you know, you know, speculation or just, you know, observation out in nature. This is a sterile environment, you know, the known, you know known quantities, uh, known conditions, you know, stable temperatures, stable moisture content in soil, and this type of thing. So what was done is that a, cou- a couple of experiments were done with plants. And, you know, I want to say it was a, I want to say it was a corn plant or, or or with corn plants, but I'm not exactly sure, but I mean, anyway, so a soil, a soil mix was prepared for all of the experiments and in one experiment, a single uh, plant was grown all, you know, corn plant or whatever it was, was grown all by itself, you know, and when I mean grown, I'm not talking grown to maturity, like, you know, what it's, in the active stages of, of growing. Not a seedling, but not a full grown plant. You know, in the active stages of, of getting to maturity. And so there was one plant that was done and it's off in a, in, you know, like a, a, a chamber sealed from everything else. Stable temperature, stable oxygen, stable carbon dioxide levels, stable moisture, stable humidity, the whole ball of wax. It's put into a chamber. Another experiment is that Two, two plants were put into separate containers with the same soil mix, and they were put into another chamber, much like, exactly like the first. Was stable everything, stable environment. The third one was done with two plants. They were planted in the same potting mix, but they were planted in the same pot. You know the, the same uh, the same vessel so their roots at this point were were connecting to each other the soil mix had been previously inoculated with some kind of mycorrhizae they confirmed the sciences science team confirmed that the mycorrhizae was was not only there but it was actively growing and creating a network and microscopy and, and things like that will we'll, we'll, you know show you that. So they knew that the mycorrhizae was present in all of these pots. So in chamber one, where there's a single plant, they introduced a, an insect, or uh, yeah, like a, an insect that uh, is a predator of that, a known predator of that plant. That plant died. In the second chamber where there are two of the exact identical plants but in separate pots with the same soil and known growing mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, they introduced, took out one of the plants and introduced the, uh, uh, the pest to the one plant and then put it in to the cha- back into the chamber and it killed both plants. And and there was some there was some kind of I'm trying to remember exactly what, you know exactly what it was in the third chamber. They even though even though that the two plants shared the same soil because they were in the same pot, they were able. They made strides to be able to separate out, and I guess maybe what it was was that. This pest is not going to bore, un, you know, into the ground like, it, like I, I'm sure it was like not a nematode, right? Where they put a nematode in one, it's going to be able to go through the soil. This was an airborne pest, and they were able to figure, you know, uh, make like sort of like a inside the chamber a barrier between the two plants, even though they, uh, <clears throat> even though they um, inhabited the same soil. In this chamber, the third chamber, they introduced one side of the bifurcated chamber with what you know one plant. Uh, they introduced the pest, and that plant started to get sick and started dying. And then they removed the barrier. And the second plant that inhabited the same soil was fine. The pest was still present but it was fine. How the hell did this happen? So, what we, we're pretty sure what's going on is that the communication that I'm talking about within the mycelial network, from one plant to another plant, okay, not only is it possible for these, for this organism to pick up, you know, sugars, and either ingest it for its you know for its own growth and health or transport it to maybe another plant that maybe needs the carbon or the sugar or whatever. Apparently it can pick up and transport other chemicals that are produced by the plant and in this case stress chemicals. Plants are going to produce like maybe like hormones or pheromones or some type of other Um, organic chemistry, like small molecule organic chemistry, that will only be produced if it's under predation by a pest. Now, if the mycelial network was able to pick that up and transport it to the other plant, and the other plant is able to read that and say, "Uh uh-oh, it's a stress molecule. I need to start producing X, Y, and Z enzymes and proteins to be able to fend off in case I am predated by the same thing that produces this stress response in in, uh, plants that are like me. And that's what happened. It was able to pick up stress hormones or stress chemistry from the plant under predation, take it to the other plant. The other plant picked it up and it changed the way that it did its metabolism in its cells so that what would normally not be produced in that cell is now being produced because it was warned, it was a warning signal. So that's another way that we know that these mycelium really are connecting in a not just a nutrient transport or water transport way but in an actual informative way. This was nothing but pure information in the form of organic chemistry being transferred from one plant to another plant, and it caused that other plant to survive because it picked up the the warning communication signals from the plant that was under predation. So, um, again, this is this is so this is far and away the best way that I've linked up permaculture or, you know, natural systems that I, you know, like one of the pillars of the things I I talk about education, I talk about gaming, I talk about permaculture, I talk about Bitcoin, I talk about, you know, I want to talk about, start talking about building a podcast, that this is, this is one of the things that I was waiting to do is to find one of these things where it's so analogous, these things are so analogous to one another that you cannot escape the fact that what the hell's going on? What the hell is it about our, our natural universe that has us repeat these patterns again and again and again and again? We repeated these patterns and we, we built the internet before hardly anybody even knew what the hell this stuff was in the soil, the, you know, the, the endomycorrhizal or ectomycorrhizal fungi. We didn't know what it did. We didn't know it was there. We didn't start looking at the soil until well after, you know, really, really looking at soil until well after the internet had its legs and was walking around. We're talking post-AOL. You know, I just, you know, it, it, how did we build the exact same thing again, except this time with electrons instead of tissue, you know, live tissue under the soil? Why do we keep building these things? Why does the network keep coming up? It's an important question. So, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. So, the, the connections here are obviously the free market relationships, and there, and there are no borders. There are no, the, you know, like the, the free market relationship also, like the, the free market, relate, we, we talk about it's like Bitcoin Bitcoin has no boundaries. Yeah, well, neither, you know, pretty soon, neither is the free market. The, 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 through the Bitcoin network, just like we see with a single mass of mushroom being able to connect, let, let's say, let's say, you know, with that honey mushroom, let's say a section of land. Of course, let's not, the honey mushroom is a parasitic and it's killing all the trees. Well, let's say it was an uh or a mycorrhizal relationship of the same size. And you got birch, and you got beech, and maybe you got a couple of pine trees, maybe there's an oak in there, maybe there's black walnut, and they're all connected to the same network. And they're all connected to not only the same network, all of them are connected to, a, a, like let's say a plethora of networks because all these things come in different, different species. There's not like ectomycorrhizal fungi. Oh, that's one species. No, there's a whole ton of different, different species. And I guarantee you those species are able to connect to each other in their, micro, uh, in their uh, fiber, their filament, filamentous, their filaments, I'll bet you that they can connect. And one of the fun things about watching this stuff is knowing that there's a couple of these things where the individual cells that make up fungus where, they, where there should be, like as they're making a filament, it's like one cell and then another cell and they're all in a line. That's how this stuff works. And in a lot of these things, there's a septum between the cells that allow for things to pass from cell to cell. And in some cases, they're so large that whole nuclei are transported along these networks that nuclei contains more information than the Encyclopedia Britannica in its DNA. The information passage that's going on without us even involved, that's been going on for years, the amount of data that has been passed throughout this planet, before we even were a moat in the creation's eye, is staggering. So again, we're, you know, here, you know, we're, we're, we're building it again. We're building it. We're building, you know, Bitcoins, I I don't, you know, tell you the truth, I'm wondering if we built Bitcoin or if, or if Bitcoin demanded us to build it. At this point, I don't even know if Bitcoin can't be classified as a living organism. It acts, it looks, it functions in so many ways, like this mycelial network and much, much more, that I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to classify it as a, as a, as a tech. I, I'm not sure if it's not a living organism at this point. So with that pontification, I'm going to put this one to bed, and I hope that you guys go and do good things, and do good things to each other. And, you know, hopefully think about what, you know, some of these things and and get fascinated by it. And if you're interested more in what's going on under your feet in the soil, I highly recommend you go get Paul Stamets' book, Mycelial Running, or I'm sorry, Mycelium Running. Paul Stamets, his last name is S-T-A-M-E-T-S, Paul Stamets. He was interviewed recently by, or uh, he's actually got a couple of interviews with Joe Rogan. So any of you guys that are big Joe Rogan fans, um, just type in, you know, go Google Joe Rogan and Paul Stamets, and you listen to this dude talk, and if, if it doesn't just completely blow the top of your head off then you have got to be the most boring person on the face of the planet. And I'm, I'm sorry for you. My heart goes out to the bag holder of ETH. My heart goes out to the bag holder of, of a lot of the shit coins that are experiencing a nice little dead cat bounce right now. And I will see you as soon as I see you on the other side.